Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, this is Janet by herself because Stephanie is still on a break in the Balkans. So I thought I'd put together a story I've been wanting to write up or make a podcast about for a few months now. It's the story of the Campaign for an International Anti-Corruption Court, an IACC. Why is this interesting? Well, I mean, it's an important subject in its own right. How do we tackle corruption? Is it something that can be dealt with on an international, not just on a national level? Can a court help? But it's also the story of a campaign for a new court. And that has resonances, especially now, as the campaign for an aggression tribunal for the Russian invasion of Ukraine kind of waxes and wanes. And as the International Criminal Court celebrates its 20th birthday. Now, we've recently done some podcasts on wither justice in Ukraine and on the campaign to establish the ICC, together with the Coalition for the International Criminal Court. And I'll put links up to those podcasts in the show notes. I was lucky enough to get a few of the key players behind this campaign for an anti-corruption court online to take some questions from me and from some other journalists back in June. And although it still leaves me after that session with plenty more questions, I've pulled out some of the key answers here to provide everybody with a basic kind of background briefing on the campaign for an international anti-corruption court. So let's start. Why is it needed? Well, Maya Kroff is an international lawyer based here in The Hague, and she's co-chair of the International Coordinating Committee for the IACC campaign. There is an existing UN Convention Against Corruption, or UNCAC, which was adopted in 2003. It has very wide acceptance by virtually every country in the world with 189 states parties. So this is a very, very high uh, number of states parties, virtually every country in the world so as Maya says, this is an internationally accepted norm and a key goal of the international community, at least on paper, is to combat corruption. But the question is really about implementation of that UN convention and how these norms can be enforced. As the UNCAC uh, system is not able to address grand corruption or systemic corruption in national systems that are captured by corrupt leadership. So Domestic laws against corruption might be on the books, but they are simply not enforced. And just to understand why this issue of corruption is so much bigger now than it used to be, Augusto Lopez Claros, the executive director of the Global Governance Forum and former chief economist of the World Economic Forum, explains that it's partly because state interactions with their citizens have increased exponentially. There has been a rise in the number of interactions that your typical business head or or citizen has with the state. You know, literally from the cradle to the grave, we have to get a birth certificate, we have to get a passport, we have to pay our taxes, we have we want, may want to open a new business, drive a car, register property, we may be engaged in foreign trade, we may want to sell a good or a service to the government, uh, that's called public procurement. We may want to hire an employee to allow to be, build a house and so on, you know, and all of these things basically require government permits. The government is involved in some way in legalizing these, uh, these activities. And this increases, of course, in a big way, the opportunities for interaction between stakeholders, business people, uh, civil society individuals, you know, and the government, which then creates opportunities for bribery. 
And of course, there's much more to say on that. For example, the large-scale corruption that's been increased in recent years because of other kinds of economic developments. Privatization has turned out to be a, an important source of corruption, especially in the last, I would say, 30 years in Central and Eastern Europe. These countries were 100% publicly owned and you know, governments as part of their efforts to open up their economies, to qualify for European membership, uh, privatized many state assets. And this very often provided uh, for opportunities because you had to value these assets in some way. And this gave officials discretion, which then provides opportunities for, for corruption. So what does work in combating corruption? I mean, what else is there at the moment, apart from maybe creating a court? Paying civil servants well works in many countries. Instead of having thousands upon thousands of civil servants who are idle because the government is simply using the public sector as the employer of last resort, it's much better to have a leaner public sector with fewer employees, but who are better paid. And the countries that have done this have created incentives for workers not to search out for bribes to supplement their meager incomes. Transparency in government spending helps. Uh, the more clearer the budget formulation process is, the better it is for reducing corruption. Countries that have an active civil society and that have a free press have generally been better able to deal with corruption because you know politicians don't like to be found out. They don't like to be on the headlines and the, in the news media. Eliminating subsidies is also promising. Establishing international conventions has been an important element of this strategy. The International Legal Framework for Corruption Control is a key element among the options open to governments. You know? And this framework has improved significantly over the past 20 years. We have the OECD's Anti-Bribery Convention. We have the 2005 UN Convention Against Corruption which uh, has been ratified by the vast majority of its signatories. And of course, we have what we hope will soon become a reality, the International Anti-Corruption Court. One of the key backers of this proposal is Justice Richard Goldstone, former prosecutor at the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal, the ICTR, the Rwanda Tribunal, and highly involved still in the world of international criminal justice. The overwhelming majority of members of the United Nations, member states, uh, have joined UNCAC. But there's no international court, there's no international authority which is able to step in when kleptocrats become outlaws and ignore uh, and act really uh, in spite of and not because of the laws. Uh, and the court would step in only where national authorities were unable or unwilling to prosecute. So the idea of this IACC campaign is very much based on the ICC, setting this new international court up, learning from their experiences to date. And it draws also from other campaigns like the one to get the treaty to ban landmines. Goldstone says that they would target this international anti-corruption court only at the highest levels of indictees would be the heads, it would be the, the, the most senior heads of countries, heads of state and people, people appointed by them and who are complicit with them, who would be brought before the court. And of course, that raises 
many issues, uh, like the one on head of state immunity. And we really need to do a whole new podcast on that, Stephanie, if you're listening. Goldstone agrees that this does need to be thought through. Head of state immunity. Uh, it's really a controversial area of, of, of international law and particularly international criminal law. But it really begins with it, it begins with, with Nuremberg, where the London Charter that set up the Nuremberg trial stated expressly that there was no head of state immunity would be recognised. He also traces the developments in international law, uh, including the International Court of Justice ruling that international courts can overcome head of state immunity by being international and suggests that the IACC as an international court would therefore be able to target the top echelon. More and more states are refusing to recognise a head of state immunity for those sorts of international crimes. And uh, I, I have no doubt that for an international anti-corruption court uh, to work, there, there would have to be too. And uh, the same sort of exception that's made for, uh, for the ICC uh, would have to be made for the IACC. So let's be clear, this proposed court is not about day-to-day small bribery, it's about grand corruption, it's about what happens at the highest levels, the kind of corruption that makes newspaper headlines when you find out about it because the money has been stashed somewhere safe and the details then get leaked. Think of things like Panama Papers, other examples of that kind of reporting. So the idea is to get some key states to join this IACC, the kinds of states that don't want to be the repositories for dictators' cash. There's no shortage of evidence, and, and, and particularly with kleptocracy and grand corruption, uh, the, the, one of the reasons that there's a lot of evidence available is because the money gets laundered. Kleptocrats don't keep the money at home for obvious reasons. They don't know how long they're going to be at home. They don't know how long they're going to be able to use the money if they keep it at home. So, so they send it abroad. And one only has to look at the, at, at the, at the Panama Papers and the, the other leaks at, at a very high level that have been to see how vulnerable kleptocrats are, and, and, and they will probably get more vulnerable in the future because of, because of modern technology becoming, becoming ever more sophisticated. And while countries led by corrupt leaders will, of course, be reluctant to join an international anti-corruption court, uh, we've proposed that a court could be effective if it consisted of only 20 to 25 representative states joining a statute as long as these states include some financial centers uh, and attractive destinations for laundered proceeds of, of grand corruption, as these states could have jurisdiction over uh, the crimes by virtue of the commission of the crimes or parts of the crimes on their territory. Uh, to take, take, for example, just to, for illustration purposes, take a country like Switzerland. If, if, if kleptocrats in, in, in state A launders their money in Switzerland, and Switzerland is a member of the International Anti-Corruption Court, the court would have power not only over those funds, but also over the kleptocrats and those who aid and abet them, because the jurisdiction would, would, would be that wide. So the intention of, of the, the IACC campaign is, is, is really to work on setting up a novel and effective new international court learning from our experiences to date with the ICC, with other international tribunals. And the campaign is really gathering steam. Uh, it's resonating with a broad range of, of stakeholders, civil society organizations in every region of the world. 
decision makers, experts, and also a number of governments, including Canada and the Netherlands, have integrated the IACC proposal into their national priority agendas. So indeed, there, there is this resonance that this tackling grand corruption is a matter of, of urgency for the international community. So got the picture. I should mention that the campaign is actually being run by Integrity Initiatives International, and that's uh, where the Justice Richard Goldstone comes in. Uh, I'll put up their links uh, to all of the things that they've been up to via the show notes. And there's all kinds of material that they've produced that can give you much more depth than I can fit in here. But uh, what about some of the other issues that I think are pretty obvious that need to be asked? Ian Lynch, who works for Triple I, for example, I asked him, where does he think that the evidence would come from for this court? It's now trillions of documents around the world that have been published by investigative journalists that reveal highly likely uh, grand corruption by many, many different actors. So I think there would be a wealth of material and, and ways in which the, the prosecutors of International Anti-Corruption Court could very quickly find a lot of their, their targets and get to work. And another question is, how would an IACC cooperate with national jurisdictions? So this is a case, you know, if an IACC is established, it's not just when there's, you know, corrupt prosecutors or captured prosecutors or judicial system in states where the court would step in, but also where states, you know, are, are, are really trying very hard, but they simply don't have the, you know, they're, they're unable, they don't have the capacity and they need support <laughs> to prosecute some of these very uh, big cases or more complicated cases where indeed you have to dig through, you know, international financial uh, records, get the cooperation of, of, of large, you know, international banks, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see the team behind this campaign is still at the stage of thinking through exactly what a statute would look like. I mean, exactly what role would be played by whistleblowers, for example. Would they have standing before the court? And also where exactly the IACC fits into existing national systems. There are countries with experience of trying to judge domestically corruption, sometimes by themselves or sometimes with support from external bodies. One in the news most recently has been the Ukraine example, which has a specific anti-corruption chamber that is not seen to have worked very well so far. So how would this court help in that kind of situation? Would an international institution fare better than a domestic one, which can get too kind of embroiled in local politics? All of those different institutions in Ukraine, they're all very interested in this idea of an anti-corruption court, international anti-corruption court, because it, it may create well, both opportunities for them if they have politically charged cases to refer them up so that, you know, these bigger fish don't just sort of get lost in the prosecution at the domestic level. So it's very much, yeah, it's the case of they're very willing, but they're just not able to. Or it may also create some space for them to actually get, prosecute those people domestically because those people may not want to end up in an international court. They might prefer to be before a Ukrainian court. And that's also the same we hear from other current and former anti-corruption commissioners in, in many different countries, including Nigeria and Indonesia. And can the campaigners really imagine what kinds of cases might be heard at the IACC? Could there, for example, be um, a state emerging from dictatorship? Could they ask the court to find the stash of money that their former dictator has uh, put somewhere? 
Goldstone kind of reminds us of how the first years of the ICC went. If you would have asked anybody involved in setting up the International Criminal Court where the first cases were coming from, nobody would have said self-referrals by states. Nobody could have imagined that three or four African states would themselves request the International Criminal Court to investigate them. But that, that's what happened. If, if, if you'd have asked uh, any of the experts at the beginning of the life of the International Criminal Court in 2002, uh, whether there would be referrals from the Security Council, people would have laughed at the very thought of it. And yet there were two. So, so one just doesn't know. And, and, and I think courts have a tendency to take on a life of their own. Yeah, I think the ICC is definitely a bit different from how some campaigners expected it to be. And I would imagine that would be no different with an IACC. And the context now, I mean, it's 20 years on since the ICC was created, is different. There's a real general fatigue around the world with the ICC's failures. I mean, it's limited by who exactly signed up and it's limited by what's considered in the interests of justice by each prosecutor, which can also come down to resource uh, as well and decisions about who to target and where to target. And there's the support and big debate around a new aggression court. But there are lots of questions around double standards and precisely who is backing this court, uh, the countries who may have perpetrated aggression themselves in the past, let alone who would actually host it and uh, how it would be mandated. So would that actually get off the ground? So against those contexts, I really wonder whether this campaign has a future. Certainly it has big names behind it and it has a really strong um, missionary almost zeal. But it will really depend on capturing and harnessing political will. So this is a story I'm going to continue to watch and ask questions about. And if you have some queries yourself that you'd like me to put to the campaigners, just let me know via Twitter or via the website next month. August, our editorial intern, Margarita Carpacci, has put together her personal selection of episodes for the summer collection of reruns. So do listen out for that. And Steph and I, together, will be back in September with some more podcasts for you. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.